Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, we've recently heard on this podcast from numerous experts that primary care in America is dying on the vine, literally, like a patient in the intensive care unit. And that has dire consequences for the American public as well as the American healthcare system. In this episode, we're going to be hearing from a novel primary care group that is taking an entirely different approach from the status quo. The organization is called Devoted Health. I'll be honest with you, I am a big fan of Devoted Health and have been following them for quite some time. And our expert guest today is Dr. Neil Wagley. Dr. Wagley earned his MD at the Harvard Medical School and his MBA at the Harvard Business School. And somewhere in there, he also founded two companies, Pull Matrix Inc. and HDL Dynamic Laboratories. Dr. Wagley trained at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in primary care medicine. As the chief medical officer at Devoted Health, Dr. Wagley has really built an advanced, specialized, and augmented primary care model, which we're going to hear a lot more about. And it, it really complements the traditional care that most people receive from their primary care providers. As of January 2023, Devoted Health had approximately 124,000 Medicare-eligible members, and we'll hopefully hear an update on those numbers from Dr. Wagley. He's really played a key role in designing their what they call all-in-one healthcare model, as well as their member experience. Again, very interested in hearing more about that. Dr. Wagley is recognized as a national thought leader in primary care and population health. He's published in journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. And so uh, without further ado, Neil, can I call you Neil? Yes, please. Neil, please call me Zev. Neil, so excited to have you. I've really been wanting to focus on devoted for quite some time. So, so, so glad that we're, we're connected in this way. You know, before we jump in, you have an interesting story because as I understand it, you were originally planning to be a cardiologist and then something happened. What happened? Well, uh, yeah, that's right. So thank you so much for having me. I'm, I, I, I listen to the podcast and I feel like I'm part of the conversation uh, in my own head, but it's, it's nice to be here as part of the conversation and congratulations um, on the book coming out. You know, I grew up the, uh, the, the child of two physicians and um, my, my, my parents, you know, told us in the nineties, you know, my brother and me um, don't go into medicine, you know, healthcare is changing. And of course we rebelled and uh, both of us are doctors now along the way, what I really wanted to do, I really wanted to make a contribution. So I, I grew up being taught that we have to take what we have and we have to give back uh, to society. And I thought, that the best way to do that was to be a cardiologist and to, you know, invent something new and then commercialize it. I really loved the intersection of medicine and business because it felt very practical. It felt like that's how you can actually move, move the ball forward. And all along the way, I kept getting signs from the universe that um, what I was supposed to do was help the plight of American healthcare. You know, in business school, I had a professor, um, Richard Bomer, who really introduced me to how difficult things were, how challenging things were. And by the way, this was, you know, in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, 
somebody with an MD and an MBA should really be working on that. Mm-hmm. But I looked at careers in, in, in the field and I thought, these don't feel very practical. They don't feel like they're making a big difference on a, on a daily basis. The pace of change feel, felt a little too slow for me. And then so um, I went to residency again as a categorical intern thinking I was going to be a cardiologist. And I had the good fortune of shadowing um, who, someone who's now my mentor, Tom Lee, at uh, Partners Healthcare, now Mass General Brigham. And I happened to be shadowing him. I was in the room when Gary Gottlieb, who was then CEO of uh, Mass General Brigham, signed its first value-based contract. It was right after the Affordable Care Act was, was paving the way for other value-based contracts. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, we're probably going to lose $70 million in year one, but we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do for patients. And my head exploded. And I said, I like, you know, I changed careers on a dime. I became a, a primary care doctor. And I, you know, asked Tom like, what I could do to help. And what I noticed um, as I was starting that career, again, I was still, still a resident at the time, but I, I noticed a few things which really led me to, to how I approach these problems. Sometimes I saw a lack of, lack of practicality. There are so many smart, good-hearted people in healthcare, and I would find sometimes the solutions. You know, I remember one of the first things I worked at was trying to improve quality in the system. And the solution was that, you know, we we're going to hire an army of folks to go out into waiting rooms with clipboards and, you know, ask people questions and get grant funded to study the answers. And I thought, man, this is not going to move the needle fast enough. Mm-hmm. And then as I was in the system at MGB and interacted with other participants, three, three big lessons sort of came out. One, practicality. Like we really need to focus on practical solutions that are going to move the ball forward quickly. By the way, um, there was a a corollary to that rule that you can't add another thing to people's Mm -hmm. plate in healthcare without taking something away. It has to be net negative. Otherwise it's not going to work. The second thing was really humility. So I find there's sometimes a lack of humility in how people approach problems in healthcare. There are so many people um, working to try and fix the system. And they are, and even the people who are just in the system, just you know, living out their day-to-day lives, they're pouring their lives into this system. And even when you know they're sort of acting across purposes to what we're trying to get at, they're they're not doing because they're bad people. They're good people trying to do good things. Um, and so as we go out there, it, it doesn't help if you if you even have a hint of like, hey, you're doing the wrong thing, you're terrible and we're great, you know, like that, that, that attitude um, doesn't work. There's always something to learn from others. Um, and this work is so hard. It's, it's just worth it to recognize the struggle that we're all facing together. And the third lesson was to approach things from a place of love. And that might sound a little funny. Like it's not common to talk about love when you're talking about, you know, healthcare or business, but The people we're talking about in this system are our loved ones. They're our mothers and fathers and our brothers or children, right? Like these are the people we care about. And I'm sure you experience this. I experience this like loved ones, neighbors, colleagues, they come to me with their issues because the healthcare system isn't able to solve their problems. And so I help navigate. Um, I'm sure you do the same. I'm sure every provider who's listening does the same thing. And it is so painful to see what their experience is like in healthcare and the poor outcomes that are resulting from it, we have come to use something we call the prime directive. And the prime directive 
really is the embodiment of this love. It is whenever you're faced with a decision, close your eyes, picture a beloved family member, think of what you would want done for that family member, then open your eyes and do that thing. Some people think that's crazy, but it's not just the right moral framing to the problems we're facing in healthcare. It's actually a great place to start your business because it is essential when people are interacting with your organization for them to trust you in order to get things done. And that prime directive, that mandate is what leads to that trust. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for that. You know, as a young person in healthcare, and I love what you've outlined in terms of sort of that practicality and couldn't agree more. In fact, I was just talking to a quality officer in the last month and we were talking about a new set of metrics in one of our contracts. And I said, how are we going to carry that out? And they said, oh, oh, we're, we're just going to ask the doctors to to add one or two or three more metrics to their plate. And I turned to that person and I said, have you ever spent any time in a doctor's office and watch what they do every day? And it already is beyond the capacity. It's not doable now. And you're just adding more to it. I said, there's, there's got to be a different way. So I completely love that. Your your sort of sense of humility and appreciation for the the work and how hard it is and how well-meaning people are and how hard they try and bend over backwards around a system. And I love your approach of, of that love. Just to build on this, and we'll definitely get to I want to get to ask you about devoted health and, and and introduce us to that. And I think this probably has a lot to do with it. In fact, as you think about leadership and emerging leadership in healthcare and the type of leadership we need in the future versus the type of leadership we've had in the past, and I don't mean individuals, I mean leadership qualities. Is there something that sort of pops out or stands out for you about, about the type of leader and leadership we need in the future? I think I think it starts with with those principles um, because they're not just important when you're talking to to other system actors. They're also important for your own workforce. I find that the providers we have coming on board here, um, we we have you know hundreds now. They have been scarred um, largely from feeling an adversarial relationship with the leadership of the organizations that they've been at. They have experienced a tension between leaders who are trying to extract more and them trying to like, you know, um, to live their lives. And like, I, I don't want to set up that d- dichotomy as like, well, there's the evil manager and there's the good provider, right? Like everyone again is doing what they have to do, doing what they think is best. If not, individual bad actors but that dynamic is poisonous Mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's a dynamic that leads to mistrust um, and a lack of progress and so when you start the conversation again leading with love leading with humility listening to your frontline and you know giving them the time and space to do what they need to do we, we have tried very very hard to build a culture where every single provider and not just the providers but everybody supports the provider can provide the ocean of patients that is required to take care of patients. Mm. Use of patients two ways there, but Mm -hmm. in order to live in healthcare, you need to have that ocean of patients. It's bumpy, it's hard, right? Like even in the best case scenario, Mm -hmm. taking care of sick people is hard and helping them navigate the morass of healthcare is hard. 
if you yourself are stressed or burned out, there's no way you can provide the patients required for, for caring for others. So we try to make sure we have this culture where we're supporting each other, we're leading from a place of love and humility, and that sort of fills the tank. It fills the reservoir for our, our um, providers to then be able to care for their patients. And the other thing I would just mention, mm -hmm. because I think it is really important, is fun. You can't do this. You can't do this work unless you're having fun. We spend so much of our lives at work. Uh, I spend so much of our time working. And so we better be laughing and having fun while we're doing it, or we're not going to be able to be as effective as we really need to be to solve this crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Sort of picking up on this, maybe widening the aperture a little bit. I mentioned in the introduction, sort of the situation in primary care. I'm just curious from your perspective, devoted health to me sounds like a response, a solution to a, a problem or multiple problems. And particularly in the way that you've constructed it and are deploying it and developing it. What are some of the core problems you see, especially with your fresh eyes as you come into healthcare and, and you clearly did not just accept that things are the way they are and that's the way they're going to be. What, what, what do you see as some of the core problems in, in primary care more specifically and then in sort of the system itself? The fundamental problem is that there is too much to do to provide highly reliable longitudinal care for the population within the care delivery structures to which most people have access. Like we, we call this primary care. I say this as a PCP we are trying to do two things at once that are diametrically opposed. Hmm. We're trying to get primary care to do really, I, I think it's like seven things, if you, depending on who you count, it could be more than that. You know, it's trying to do preventive care and wellness, chronic disease management, multidisciplinary intensive care for the sick, urgent care, new and comprehensive diagnosis, health-related social needs or social determinants, and navigation, right, to other parts of the healthcare system. That is a lot for one place to do. And we're trying to get primary care to do that at the exact same time, we are ridiculously, I mean, it's ridiculous how much we are underfunding primary care. We spend less than 5% on primary care. That is an infuriating tension, right? We needed to do more. We wanted to do a whole bunch of different things and we're not funding it properly. So what do we get? We get low quality, expensive care. And that starts with access. Um, most, many people can't find a PCP. When they do, it's hard to get an appointment. They can't get in touch with their doctor. So pr primary care has this moat that it has built around itself for survival. And look, I get it. People who have 2000 patients, you know, like they, they, there's not enough time to like field all of the inbound, but that moat is so damaging to patients. As a, as a PCP myself, and I worked in a great system that um, provided a lot of resources, but even in my system, even though I was a part-time PCP with 250 patients, this moat, every time I saw every single clinic day, some patient or another would say, I tried to get in touch with you and I couldn't. And I couldn't bear that. Like, I couldn't bear to hear that. I was like, why? I don't understand. Like, I... You know, you send me a message on the, on, the, on the patient gateway and like, you'll get in touch with me. It, it, it was because I was part, you know, part of the thing that the system did was protect me or try to protect me from those messages. But that's not 
that's not what patients need. So I would end up giving out my cell phone number to my patients, which is fine for me as a part-time PCP, um, but wasn't something that was practical for other people to do. So what happens to the patient? They basically, each of those seven things trying to get done, get done poorly. And so the patients do the only rational thing they can do, which is mostly nothing. They just stay at home and worry. It's called this disutility of care until eventually they have to utilize the acute care system. And guess what? The acute care system is not designed for great comprehensive longitudinal care. It's designed to stabilize patients and then send them back out to the PCP to get to the root of the problem, but that second step doesn't always happen. And so then the acute care system results in, in high costs and nosocomial infections and all the things that you know. Um, and I've heard you tell the story about your mother, which to me is absolutely heartbreaking, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Mm. And my, own, my uncle died last month, um, similarly. Mm. It is unbearable. Yeah. And so what, what the consequence of that is then to the provider... So not only do we get low quality, expensive care, but then the providers, they can't bear to work in the system, right? And that is the moral injury that we are talking about, right? It is not, I don't think, I think that the problem is sometimes misconstrued as, you know, working too hard or something like that. That's not the problem. Like none of us are, are, are shy from hard work, right? Like we, right. it's a very hard path to get into medical school and do all those things. We're not, we're not shy of hard work. What we can't bear is to work as hard as we're working and feel like we're not delivering for our patients, right? There's documentation, there's a long hours, there's a fee-for-service hamster wheel, and then we don't get that dopamine release, the psychological fuel that we get from knowing that we help someone because we're being asked to do more with less in a shorter amount of time. Mm -hmm. If we reverse that and we help people feel like they're helping people, have the time to make meaningful connections with other human beings and a therapeutic alliance, like that is the fuel that the psychological fuel that's going to get people to be able to, to see more patients. Yeah, no, that's great. It, well, it's not great. It's quite the opposite, but I, I think that depiction, and I'm sorry to hear about your uncle. I, I know the pain of those type of losses. You know, it's so interesting. I spent some time when I was up in Boston actually doing time motion studies of physicians, mostly primary care, and, well, no, some specialists too, and surgeons. And you know what you say is exactly right. They, there wasn't one workflow. There were multiple streams of workflows, and they're almost like silent workflows that no one was recognizing. One being all the time you spend on the phone or in email or the in-basket, and it seemed like there was almost like a silent workflow because you have your day-to-day -day visits and the things surrounding the visits. Then you have all this continuous care going on as well behind the scenes because the other hundreds and hundreds of people that you're caring for, you know, they have problems that come up. And so they're constantly in need. And to your point, if you're not responsive, not only do you get disutility, but then you get bad things happening pretty quickly and they end up in EDs and, and hospitals. So I completely agree with the way you've outlined. It's ridiculous, the, the amount of work. And also, I think your point about under-resourcing again, spot on. You know, what always struck me is when I would go into and watch a surgeon operate, the one thing you notice about, about that is that it's a team. So there's a team that goes in to prep the room. There's a team that takes care of the equipment. There's a team that is doing monitoring. There's a team that's doing the anesthesia. There's a team that's making sure, you know, things are clean. There's, there's a communications team. There's so much going on 
And, and there's so much support for that person. And thank God for that. Could you imagine if a surgeon had to walk into a room alone and do every single thing by themselves all the time, every day, one after another? You know, you could do it once or twice, but repeatedly every day. And yet that's what we expect primary care doctors to do. And the work is just as complex and, and in many ways much more complicated because of the of the relationships going on simultaneously and all the other work that that's required. So the fact that we don't resource primary care is really maybe one of the root cause issues. I'm just kind of curious what you think about that. I completely agree, but I would want to take it one step further, which yeah. is that even when we provide the resources, because I, I, I again, like there, there are places that do provide some resources. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to actually put those resources into the flow of somebody's work so that it actually saves time rather than cost time. I, I've seen this so many times, again, uh, in, in my previous work and my work here, that like, the, so, so there are some clinics, you know, who say, like, look, we really need to do something about whatever, right? Diabetes, hypertension, like social determinants, right? And so they, mental health, right? They, they, these resources are appearing. There are a lot of companies that are providing these resources and, you know, health systems are starting to incorporate them. But when you're in a session and you're talking to a patient and you say, okay, the time has come to use this resource that I know exists. How do I do that again? Like, you know, what, what ends up happening is like, you know, people put sticky notes around their computer screen and they try to remember, but like the person who was there last week is maybe not the person who was there this week. So it's a different email address or a different in-basket address. Those phenomena that actually make team-based care impractical contribute to this problem, even when those resources exist. And what happens is providers in the midst of their pretty busy day, instead of trying to remember like, oh, like, how am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to page that person, send them a message, email, like, what am I supposed to do? Mm. They just do it, right? Like it's the simpler path. It's like, it takes less um, cognitive load to just actually like try to do it yourself. So I just, just uh, like a, a, a yes and to your comments about resources. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. It's, it's an unintended consequence of so much of the digital era and the digital solutions and others that it, you're right. How does it fit into the flow? Does it actually help? Given that sort of situation and given some of the challenges with some of the solutions that have been generated, how are you all addressing this at Devoted Health? What is Devoted Health? What differentiates it? How, how is it solving for this problem in primary care and healthcare in general? I think when you, th when you think about a solution to these problems, this, the set of problems we have here, an aging population, the cost crisis, a provider burnout crisis. But one of the problems is you can't tackle them piecemeal. Mm -hmm. Just like we talk about whole person care, we need a whole system approach to solving these crises. There are, There is this great ecosystem, and it has been actually for a long time, um, an ecosystem of resources that try and get a beachhead, um, try and tackle one problem and then move on from there. Establishing a beachhead in a market is how business works, right? It's how every other business other than healthcare works. Like think Amazon with books, right? They got a beachhead with books and then they expanded to this, you know, and, and other verticals around there. And they were able to do that. The problem is establishing a beachhead doesn't work in healthcare. And it's because everything is so interconnected that when you try to tackle one beachhead, you just get swamped by other problems. 
So, you know, I could, you know, talk about a bunch of examples, you know, from disease specific companies to integrated delivery networks to advanced primary care to payers, um, each trying to tackle one piece of the puzzle. And for various reasons, it's like really hard to, um, to get that done. Let me just give you, give you one set of examples. Mm -hmm. I see a bunch of companies out there that are sort of disease specific or condition specific. And so what they do is they try to contract with a health plan or with a big provider system and say, hey, listen, we can really help you with your outcomes in X condition. And the issue is that they have two choices when they're selling those services. They can sell them with fee-for-service pricing or they can sell them with value-based pricing, right? So some sort of like risk share or beat the benchmark methodology. If you choose a fee-for-service methodology, then you are in some ways at odds with your customer, right? Like you want to deliver more, so you have more revenue and you can deliver more great outcomes. And your, your customer is like, you know, kind of, wary of how much you're going to be sort of maybe overselling your product. But value-based pricing is much better, but also fraught. And the reason is that um, it's hard to know what the benchmark should be or how to divide the pie. It's almost impossible when you have these disease-specific companies to attribute the benefit that they're providing mm. to the services that they're offering. Right. So, you know, they're doing some good work and hopefully they're keeping people out of the hospital or something like that. But if somebody doesn't go to the hospital, you know, that's the counterfactual. How do you know what is attributable? And you can use, you know, data analysis to say, well, here's what your population was doing before and here's what they're doing now. And this much is attributable. But those methodologies always cause friction. Um, and so these disease-specific companies, even when they are good and have great clinical outcomes, their sales cycle is really hard. Um, and so they aren't able to grow um, fast enough. That, that is one set of problems they have. The other set of problems that you see with companies like this is that their population penetration is low. So they're calling up patients often that they are neither the PCP necessarily, nor are they even other familiar actor to patients. And so even if the clinical outcome is really good, um, their population penetration is low. And so the population impact is sometimes low. What I just outlined for disease-specific companies, there's a, a similar a sort of complementary set of problems for every actor in the system today. And mm -hmm. That's what we realized when we were starting this company. And so we realized we were going to do something crazy, which was build the whole vertically integrated health system from scratch. Hmm. So that, that's why we say devoted is an all-in-one health offering. In many ways, it's like a verti verti vertically integrated health system. It's both a payer and a provider and the technology that provides it. So number one, it's a devoted health plans or Medicare Advantage health plans, mostly zero premium that provide everything that Medicare has to offer, plus vision and dental and hearing. We have this guide service, and this is absolutely critical. Um, we can talk more about it, but guides have been described as concierges or professional sons and daughters or guardian angel service. We're basically really nice to people. We pick up the phone. There's no like phone tree. There's no waiting. We pick up the phone within, you know, 97% of the time within 30 seconds, and we're just relentless in getting people the care they need. And on average, our members call us once per month instead of once per year. Um, and we have an, uh, the results is an NPS of 77, but more importantly, trust, right? Trust between members and this company called Devoted. Then the members keep their PCP, 
but recognizing the enormity of the challenge facing primary care, all those things that we're asking primary care to do, the member keeps their PCP, but devoted medical, the provider arm, supplements the patient and their primary care team with whatever is needed. Complete, customized, coordinated care that does prevention and wellness and chronic disease management and urgent care, um, help with food, housing, transportation, access to Medicaid, um, palliative care, transitions of care, intensive care in the home for the sickest folks, Wh whatever, whatever the patient needs. We have 16 distinct like market segments, distinct service lines covering the whole range of what you might consider advanced primary care. And we provide all of that completely free. There is no cost share for the patient. They just get these services. And we capitalize on those guides, delivering that great customer experience to build that trust so that patients give us the opportunity on the clinical side to care for them. The NPS is 77 means that when we call, they pick up the phone and they talk to us. Then we give our providers a bunch of time and space, an hour for their visits, time to create that therapeutic alliance. We use a bunch of technology. Um, I could talk about our software. Um, we use connected devices. We make documentation really easily. So we, we make the output to effort ratio really, really good for our providers. And the results are that patients are a lot healthier. They actually, these results make us surprised. I mean, I, we've built these services and they're still surprising to us. One example is that we're, we, we're, we have 41% less in hospital expenses on a population level compared to a med, the Medicare population. Like that's a profound change in how people are utilizing the healthcare system. Yeah. Oh my God, it's huge. Do you mind if I jump in and ask some questions? Please. So who's your customer and how do they work with you? And are you literally the payer or do you work through other TPAs? We are literally the payer. So Devoted Health Plan is the payer and that's our customer acquisition engine. So we, we go and we sell to Medicare eligible um, patients. We have an employed sales force. We use brokers, like all the ways that people buy Medicare Advantage, they buy Devoted Health Plan and then they get the rest of this. We call it like the five layer cake. They're getting sort of the whole vertically integrated health system when they sign up for devoted health plan. And I have to ask you the question, of course, what, name the five layers of the cake. The five layers of the cake are the Medicare Advantage health plan, um, the devoted health guides, our PCP partners are like a key layer of the stake. So we, you know, we really try to empower them and, and make life easy for them and like not create a lot of red tape for folks and pay them very, very quickly. Um, and so like make their life easier. I didn't talk a lot about that. Then we have devoted medical, uh, which is providing these, you know, now 16, it's going to be 18 in a, in a couple months, service lines, and then the software platform. There is a single software platform that powers every single thing we do. So there's no data silos. There's no like transferring things back and forth. We all are looking at the same full picture of the patient. You just said something about 16, now moving to 18 service lines. Co, what, what kinds of service lines? And, and this is all within primary care or beyond that? Yeah. So, you know, we, we, the, the, the 16 service lines, like some of them, the, what I call the base of the pyramid, um, are sort of the comprehensive service lines that, that we want for all members. So comprehensive assessment visits where we're focused on understanding the needs of patients, um, making sure we close all the, uh, you know, the quality gaps. Um, and then we connect 84% of patients who have a comprehensive visit to another service. Also at the base of the pyramid, um, clinical pharmacy. So we're focused on adherence. We have like 90% adherence to um, statins, diabetes medications, and RAS antagonists. And we get people on statins. 
We have this community guide program at the base of the pyramid where we are um, focused on the social determinants of health, getting people housing, food, transportation, prescription assistance. And by the way, we help them like apply for Medicaid and get LIS and SNAP. Those are often $300 in the pocket per month mm. of this patient. Um, and that's a game changer for them, right? Like it opens up the rest of the pyramid that I'm about to talk about. Navigation is also at the bottom, right? Getting, getting people connected to the care they need. The next layer is specialty care. And so we do diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, COPD, palliative care, and ESRD coming soon, uh, behavioral health program, and musculoskeletal care. And those are basically very sharp tools that um, led by a clinical expert in that field who engage the patient, rapidly iterate using data, and we, can all, we have outcomes like in diabetes, for instance, we're able to lower hemoglobin A1C by 2.1 in 83 days. Um, so all of these programs are extraordinarily effective, but they're short-term. Take somebody, address the problem, give them back. The next layer is longitudinal care. So that's the top 5 to 10% of patients who are responsible for 60 to 70% of utilization and, and cost. And so we really, they need something different. They need intensive care, often in the home. We have a very robust interdisciplinary team, nurse practitioner, community health worker, social worker, nurse case manager, physician, um, and an outreach specialist, right? So a lot of resources. These people have clinical and behavioral and social and financial needs that we all have to take care of all at once. And then the very top of the pyramid is episodic and urgent care. So 24 seven, 365, you can call us. When you call us, we don't try to resolve it on the first call. We actually turn that into an episode. Um, we call it our mobile observation unit, um, where we basically treat you. You know, we, ha we have a virtual visit with you. Sometimes we can get labs or, or um, imaging in the home and we round on you over the next like, you know, day. And then, and then sometimes people get antibiotics for, for infections or, um, other treat other exacerbations. We're able to prevent a lot of acute care that way, um, and also at the top of that pyramid, transitions of care and uh, some other special circumstances like pick lines and wounds and uh, things like that. But that that that's the sort of universe of services we're providing. Wow, that's fantastic! If you have a graphic of that, I'd love to include that in the sort of show notes and description of our interview. It's really fantastic. How did the providers work? Do they have a team around them, or do they consult these services? How does that work? Yeah, the thing is, and this goes back to something that you've talked about a lot, like when you look at all of these different sort of market segments, how you design the model is actually different, right? Like what each segment of the model needs is very different. And so when we're talking about like the base of the pyramid, um, you know, we have a nurse practitioner, they're backed by a bunch of uh, medical assistants, and like that's kind of the entry point. Our community guide service is staffed with like a whole bunch of social workers and they're really high throughput. Like it's not often you talk about like social workers and high throughput, like in the same sentence, but people have a lot of needs. And so we have a service that's just designed to sort of crank out aid, right? In the form of housing and food and transportation. They're specialty clinics. They're all centered around one clinical expert um, who is the quarterback, but then has access to a prescriber, usually a nurse practitioner, but sometimes a doctor, a pharmacist, a social worker. And one of the things we do that's really, really valuable mm. is we make tasking very, very easy. So because we're all using the same software platform, it's like one button. But the situations that come up where people need additional help, like, you know, the, it's 
10, 15, 20 circumstances are really the basis of a lot of what we do, capture the 80% of what we do. And so we can make it like very easy for somebody in the course of their visit to sort of tag in one of their teammates. And often by the end of the visit, that problem has been solved. So yeah, it, it requires a team. You can't have these providers trying to do it all by themselves. And so let's say if I had a specialty problem like COPD, would I go see that COPD expert with their team or how, how would that protocol be manifested? Yeah, so so for example, by the way, I, I, I'm not sure I've made this point strong enough. Almost yeah. all of these services are virtual. So they're mostly virtual, but we do have some in-home component for most of them. But so for example, COPD. Mm-hmm we would know that you were the right patient for the COPD program one of a couple of ways. Either we interacted with you in that care on demand urgent care program, you called in because you were having trouble breathing, or maybe we saw you in a comprehensive visit and we said, whoa, you're, you're, you're having a lot of trouble with your COPD, or we have data, right? Like tons of data out there looking at people's utilization patterns. So either you'd be sort of warmly transferred and referred in from an existing uh, experience, or we might proactively reach out to you. When you start with us, um, you start with one of our nurses who's going to do an intake with you an hour long, figure out, by the way, when we do these intakes with people, we always start with something that we call patient priorities of care. Patient priorities of care is a flip of the script. And we find that it's really valuable in this population because there is so much learned helplessness out there. And we can talk more about that, that people assume that you are going to fail to help them out of the gate. And so we start with patient priorities of care to say, what do you want? Like, what are your values? There's a structured conversation about what are your values and what is the one thing that if you could make better, you would. By the way, they never say like lower my hemoglobin A1C or systolic blood pressure. They always say, I'm feeling tired. I can't work anymore. I used to you know, work as a crossing guard. I can't do that. At least half the time it has to do with their family. You know, my, my spouse has dementia and I really need to support them. My grandchild, I've never, I haven't seen them in, in years because, you know, my, my knee hurts too much. And to get the knee surgery, I have to lose weight, but I can't lose weight because I'm depressed. You know, like there's a series of things. And so we focus all of our care on that one goal. Oftentimes, so in the example of COPD, you know, people are having trouble breathing. We're saying like, look, here's what your, your score is on your COPD assessment test, like reflects like how difficult you're having uh, uh, breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we get some of these medications in place, we can sort of help you uh, breathe better and be able to go and see your grandchild more easily. So that, that sort of helps us hook them in. And then we, we work iteratively with them, right? We'll get them a spirometer, it's worked with the, the benefits of the health plan. We send them a free spirometer. And um, then we might send them to a pharmacist uh, to help uh, optimize their medications. Uh, but it all starts with that sort of nurse um, quarterback. Oh, wow. Really, really fascinating. And as you were saying, most of these visits are actually virtual. So mm-hmm. it's not the patient's going to see. Okay. And that does make, I guess it facilitates seeing different providers. You've mentioned the technology. So when you say that, I, I think most of us are thinking a traditional electronic medical record system, since that's the technology we're most familiar with. What's your technology like? How is it different? I'm hearing in your voice, and or maybe I'm just projecting, but like whenever somebody says the technology is is key to what they're doing, I, I have to say, um, having mm. seen a number of companies sort of tell me why their technology is the panacea, mm. I approach it from a place of skepticism. You know, mm. I'm like, well, mm. that sounds nice, but you know, it's not really going to help. 
the way our whole technology platform is designed is to attempt to empower our humans. Mm -hmm. It's a human facilitation based technology. And the way we do that is we have a, we have a saying we call people problem process. It's very much uh, on its head from what you would expect. We basically take a clinical problem and we find somebody who is exceptional at handling that problem. Usually someone sort of overmatched for the problem, right? Like we have one of the, the best, you know, palliative care physicians in the country, right? Like uh, who started out just seeing the patients by the ones, helping them um, with those conversations. And then what we do is we take our uh, product and engineering folks and data scientists and we have them watch what's going on. How is that provider actually providing their care? And what they're able to do as they're watching is to say, oh, that thing that just took you 10 minutes, I can help you do that in 30 seconds. Oh, that thing that you just did, I can actually do that for you, right? And so their system has evolved in such a way where it's designed to basically make humans able to do their work faster and easier and more reliably. Because we know like actually that process control is something that's really important in healthcare. So the format that takes is this one platform that takes care of, you know, members from the time they're considering enrolling to through enrollment, their HRAs, their data from Medicare claims, pharmacy claims, lab data, medications, um, you know, documents. Um, and uh, we use optical character recognition on all those documents or if they're CCDAs, we parse all that data and it all goes into the same place and we make it highly visible and usable. So we use this. Facebook style timeline, you know, so you can see everything that has happened with a patient in reverse chronological order. You can sort and filter that. If you see a hospitalization, you can zoom into that and say, well, what happened on day three? I want to see the neurologist consult note so I understand where how to take the next step. So it gives unparalleled visibility in addition to this sort of process control. And I will say it makes the documentation really easy. So by the time you're finished with your visit, because it has designed to like basically facilitate your work. Most documentation is done within 15 minutes of the visit and we don't have any pajama time. I think that's something a lot of providers could understand and appreciate. Yeah, no, this is fantastic. I, I, I mean, I'd love to dive in more and actually see this technology. And by the way, I wasn't skeptical. I think uh, it's probably more hopeful than anything else. I think I'm skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I'll tell you why I'm not skeptical because I, I actually do think that moving forward in the future, I think, I think we've and I did write about this in my book, so I, I've been thinking about this. I think in the past 30, 40 years, technology has, like you say, made it in, in many ways more difficult. It, it hasn't delivered on the promise, at least in healthcare. You know, in other facets of our life, it, it absolutely does. But in healthcare, for some reason, it hasn't, probably for many reasons. I do think that moving forward with the digitalization of healthcare, that really is the promise, the idea that it will remove, like you say, the the time, the steps, the mundane sorts of transactional things and make it easier, open up more time and actually allow us to be more human with one another. And I, I think in many ways, that's a premise underlying the approach you all have taken at Devoted Health is to to really make it easy for a human being to take care of another human being. That, that's 100% right. You know, one of the reasons actually just in, in terms of diagnosing the problem that you raised, like why hasn't it done it yet? Yeah. In many ways, I think that is because of what the technology is designed to do. As we know, like no, no surprise to anyone, EHRs are billing software primarily, right? Like that was their origin story. 
And so when you start out at a place where you're like, look, I have to do X number of historical elements in order to build a level four visit, right? Like that is not a system that's designed to help you care for somebody. And so that was one of the real benefits of being able to design everything here from scratch. We don't have to care about, you know, building a level five or four, whatever visit in an ENM code, right? All we have to think about is what is going to help me or one of my colleagues take great care of this person next. And so, so, so that, that, that just in the way of diagnosis, the, the other thing I would say is we're on the cusp of a revolution, right? I mean, again, I, 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 I hesitate to talk about this because I, I, I worry that it sounds ridiculous, yeah. but like yeah. AI is going to change everything. Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out like what the, we, what we don't want is we don't want AI to take the place of a provider. At least we're not ready for that yet, right? Like just the idea of one of these hallucinations in a care setting is just unbearable. Right. But what we do want, right? Like if AI, AI is going to be the interface, I think, with through which we interact with most of the things that we do. So if AI can actually consume information and make it more presentable, decrease cognitive load for our providers, and then take the output information and make it readable and consumable for the next person, which is basically what our software is currently trying to do, right? Like basically empower humans. AI is going to revolutionize that. So I can't wait for that part of uh, the next chapter. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. And again, I think there's so many questions about, about how you do it. I'd, I'd love to actually follow up with you on this. Great. You're in the market as a, as a Medicare plan, devoted health. Do you work with provider groups or with hospital systems and, and how does yeah. that work? Yeah. And look, I, I'll say that part of the story I um, is, is going fine, but I wish it was going better. So I started out with this naive notion, again, as a practicing primary care doctor, I had a rule uh, when we first started, you know, six years ago. Um, and the rule was we weren't going to make any changes to a patient's uh, medications or anything like that without first getting the like explicit sign off the PCP. And the reason for that is that we didn't want to be yet another force for fragmentation in the healthcare system. That was really, really important to me. Hmm. That was misguided. And it, the, the, the reason is obvious, right? Like we're trying to get in touch with these, these providers who are already overburdened. And so they don't have the time to engage with us, right? Whether we email or call or fax or whatever. And so we have changed our approach. Mm -hmm. Now we do what is necessary for caring for the patient. And then we try really, really hard to very simply and clearly communicate what happened to the provider and also empower the patient to communicate with their provider. P part of the issue is um, that providers, again, don't, don't have the bandwidth. What we're seeing, though, as we're growing and as we're getting um, more density in a particular provider's panel, is they're seeing that their patients who have access to these additional services at Devoted are doing great. They're like, magically, their blood pressure is under control and their blood sugar is under control and they're not having admissions for CHF and they've had a goals of care conversation. And as they're starting, this is starting to sort of enter their consciousness, now we're seeing more engagements Often it starts in funny ways. Often it's providers saying, hey, can I sign my mother up for, for <laughs> devoted? But, but often it's also like, hey, my other patients need this too. Mm. How, can they, how can they get this? Mm. 
And then we start more of a dialogue and, and, and that's really what we want, Rick. We want to be a primary care empowerment and enablement service. So the more communication and buy-in we have, like I want PCPs to think of us as their magic wand, right? When they're in clinic, but I, I described the problem already earlier, you know, like yeah. they don't, they can't, they can't do that. They can't execute it when they're in the course of their busy practice. But if they could, it would be great. We'd love to help. Anyway, we'll get there. But but that's, I think, uh, one, of the, one of the challenges at the moment. And I was going to ask you about that. If you're working right with primary care, I mean, as a primary care, you get this. I mean, primary care doctors are going to push back and say, these are my patients. Who's making these changes on my patients? And, and yeah. you know, it's my patient, my responsibility, my accountability, all that. Well, let me comment yeah. on that. So, yeah. so we've had over 2 million like patient touches. I think probably now it's closer to 3 million. Hmm. In the course of those, you know, two to 3 million patient touches, the t- number of times a provider has actually come and said, Hey, why'd you do that? Are, you know, a couple dozen, which is that in itself is a pretty remarkable statistic. Right. Every time that happens, you know, we get on the phone, we have doctors, we're lo- we love engagement. We love talking to them. And so we say, look, here was the situation. The patient was on the beta blocker you prescribed and the one from the hospital and they were bradycardic. And so we stopped one of them. We also, we tried to get in touch with your office twice, but we couldn't get, it, get in touch. So we, we stopped it. And by the way, all this care was completely free for your patient. And when you explain it like that, it's very hard to be upset, you know? Right. And in almost every case, you know, we've had providers say, oh, okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> what about interoperability? How does what you do communicate with the electronic medical record systems, which is where the truth is supposed to be held? Yes. Also very, very important. And one thing that I don't know whether how purposeful it is or whether it's just a gap, but there were a lot of regulations put into place about interoperability in the meaningful use era, right? And I have been saddened um, to see that like, well, there still seems to be a lot of information blocking. But it turns out there are some consortia out there, and, and the one we particip- we participate in several of them, but like Commonwealth is a great example of, um, of a document consortium that a lot of these big EHRs participate in. And so we are able to both get documents from there mm. and put documents back in there. And we do. Every single time we touch a patient, we put it into Commonwealth, and we also you know fax the note to the provider. And I crazy that we still use fax machines, but um, we do that. The issue is that actually every instance of one of these EHRs has to say, I want to get that information. So it's there in this repository. And, you know, Epic, for example, like participates in Commonwealth. Every every Mm -hmm. Epic document is in there. Mm -hmm. But every individual installation of Epic has to actually proactively ask to get those records into their system, which doesn't always happen. Yeah. If you put something in there, does the PCP have to go looking for it or does it automatically get shuttled if it's built into the instance of Epic? If it's built into the instance, it goes right into, you know, in Epic, for example, it's called Care Everywhere. Right. Um, which which I, you know, as a provider, I used, you know, we know, I was in an Epic system and I loved Care Everywhere, except it only showed me a couple of systems. Mm-hmm. And I'm now realizing that was on our end to sort of adjust those dials to see what we pulled in. Got it. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. The system you set up sounds incredibly robust and fantastic for providers and patients. 
you've mentioned one of the outcomes, which is remarkable in terms of reduced hospitalization. Any other major outcomes you'd like to share? There, there's a lot. There's a long list of these lower <laughs> hospital expenses. Like the clinical stars, we round to five in most states. Wow. This A1C lowering of 2.2.1 in 84 days. We can lower systolic blood pressure 15 in, in, in 40 days. The adherence measures, again, in a 90% versus a national average of, of 60%. Um, you can tell I, I talk about these a lot. Like, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> to care, we're lowering the readmission rate by 38%. Our intensive home care program, 48% reduction in admissions, 33% reduction in costs. Like, the results, I will say, even for those of us building it, are jaw-dropping. We have to sort of pinch ourselves and say, like, is this real? Are we really able? By the way, I should, one more thing I should mention. Yeah. Health equity. When you look at our clinical mm -hmm. stars performance, we have dashboards that look at uh, racial disparities. And we have, at least on the stars metrics, eliminated racial disparities. And, and in fact, populations that often do worse are doing better in our population. I think that has to do with sort of how we how we reach out sort of in a, in a needs-based way. But so these outcomes that I'm describing are really happening in a, in a very equitable manner. So we're really, really happy with the outcomes we're seeing so far. Yeah, you went through the list so quickly. It's astounding, having worked in quality and population health for years. It's those are amazing, amazing results and outcomes. So thank you for for sharing those, and I'll write some of those up as well in the copy for folks to take a look at. Any sort of final thoughts? Any comments? If you were speaking to a group of hospital healthcare system leaders, or anything you 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 want to kind of conclude with or share with us. I worry about the degree of despair. And so I'm so glad for your book. Um, I can't wait to read it. When, you know, I've, as I've been listening, you know, I listened to your, your, your episode with Don Berwick was fantastic. But like, you can come away from these conversations mm. demoralized, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a problem. We're, we're deep, deep into this crisis now. Yeah. It, it was unsustainable 10 years ago. And yet has, it, we have sustained it in that unsustainable environment. And so I guess the one thing I would want to say people is that there's hope, right? I really do think that we can realign things in such a way. And I'm so grateful that to, to work with the people I work with um, who do all this incredible work because they have given me hope that if you, if you do things the right way, if you invest in your people, if you give them the time and space to actually do what they were born to do and what they love to do, which is care for patients, and then align the incentives so that the people who are doing that can actually capitalize on the reduced acute utilization, we can fix this thing. Thank you for that comment. I hear the enthusiasm and energy and the hope in, in your voice, and I also hear it in what you all are doing at Devoted. And quite honestly, it's one of the reasons I'm so interested in learning about you and uh, so grateful that you were able to make the time to speak with me. I, I think it's a great example of something we need to understand more and scale more in our system. Again, I, I'd love to talk to you some more, and, and maybe we can continue this conversation in, in a part two, because I'd really love to dive in a little bit more into you know that journey of the patient as you were describing the different facets and service lines and offerings that you have. Dr. Neil Wagley, can't thank you enough for the work you're doing and the work you're doing at Devoted. And as I do every episode, I like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients. I We truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important this work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. 
my friends, until next time, be well. This is Dr. Zeb Neuwirth.